This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This is our third and final episode discussing Ishmael Bea's personal memoir, A Long Way Gone, Memoirs of a Boy Soldier. Um, In week one, we discussed the first ten chapters of the book introduced a very brief history of Sierra Leone as a country, uh, as well as a little background as to what started the civil unrest and why it lasted for so long in the country of Sierra Leone. Um, It came down to corruption uh, on the part of the government. Um, Then, of course, there were the diamonds, the ones that everybody wanted, or blood diamonds, as the world has come to call them. And last episode, we really only discussed five chapters, but they were five brutal chapters. They were the chapters where Bea discusses his entrance into the army and just a few of his experiences as a child soldier. These are brutal and tragic and unfortunately uh, more common than we would like to admit. You know, and for me personally, I'm glad he didn't harp on those. I'm sure he could have filled an entire volume just going through one terrible experience, one atrocity after another. But he didn't do that. You know, he chose events that supported specific points that he was trying to make on his journey. And one point, you know, being how callous he and the other children became to their own humanity, to the humanity of others through the drugs, by watching and modeling the behaviors of the adults around them. I mean, it's clear, uh, and he points this out, that child soldiers are braver than adult soldiers, and, and they don't know better, but they're also more expendable. And that's why they're used so widely in all of these conflicts. You know, as you were saying, uh, you appreciated that he didn't harp on the atrocities, but he actually just used them to make his point. Isn't that a lot like what Elie Wiesel did? Yes, exactly. Yeah, you could have gone on pages and pages, but that wasn't the point of what no, he was No, that's to not what he's trying to communicate. Right. In this episode, we will discuss the rest of the book, um, chapter 16 through 21. And here, Bea explores his own reintegration as a child soldier back into the world of 
real uh, sentient human beings. I mean, uh, the kind that feel empathy for each other and can live peacefully with one another. Uh, we only see the beginning of Bea's journey. We go with him as he physically escapes the war and Sierra Leone. But before that happens, we watch his journey out of drug addiction and back into mainstream living, something not even the United Nations was sure was possible for child soldiers to be able to do. And his particular case is an incredible miracle and one that is atypical of most child soldiers. Not all soldiers ended up being adopted by upper-class American parents, but truth be told, Thousands have been able to reintegrate into schools and local communities. and A miracle. Right. The question people want to know is what can we do to create hope for them? It seems, you know, on, on face value, and even, you know, the more I read about it, it just comes across as an unsolvable problem. I mean, the stories Bea includes in this final section of the book illustrates the amount of effort it takes by so many people to save one single child I mean, the Ishmael Bea who arrives at the Benin house is not the sweet Ishmael Bea that we see smiling to us if you watch a, a YouTube video of him today talking to interviewers. The Bea that emerged from the interior of that war zone is one of the many dangerous. I mean, he was a deadly young man and he killed thoughtlessly. He would wake up with migraines in the middle of the night with memories. I mean, he recounts this of the time that he first slit somebody's throat. And all of this is juxtaposed, you know, with a certain childlike innocence. Because you see also the innocence of children who get excited about Walkman and they love drinking Coca-Cola and they can still make friends and they play volleyball. You know, what kind of person gives their life to help kids like that? Do governments do it? Uh, who is doing this? Uh, are they put in institutions like orphanages? Are they being exploited? You know, we want to talk about this path to recuperation for child soldiers. But before we get into that, because that's going to be mostly what we talk about today, I did want to revisit a question that came up in a classroom, and it's a question that we had from a listener in regard to the authenticity of Bea's account. It seemed that this person who uh, wrote us had seen the report, as had one of my students, from a newspaper in the Australian. There is an investigator who uh, went and went to Machajong and he wanted to talk to the people in the town where Bea was from. And according to the research in the Australian, Bea's timeline isn't right. The atrocities Bea describes, according to them, occurred in early 1995. Well, Bea's story starts in 1993. So there's this question, well, is this an accurate account? Uh, Bea addresses these concerns very openly because this was a public debate. And I want to quote Bea's response uh, before you Google this, because you will quickly see this controversy comes up in most searches. But this is what he had to say. I have tried to think deeply about this, and my memory only gives me 1993 and nothing more. And that's what I stand by. And so Bea just stands by his original dates. Bea's book was published in 2007. You know, that's, you know, a decade after the events he describes. But because of the Civil War, records at his school were destroyed. Copies of newspaper accounts, they've all been destroyed. I mean, no, there's no doubt that his family was murdered, and there's no doubt that he served in the armed forces, but it's the dates that have been called into question. It affects how long he actually spent as a soldier. 
if he was recruited in 95, he would only been a soldier for a few months. Whereas the way he tells the story, it was closer to two years. You know, let me uh, speak to this from a, a historical perspective. Um, historians have dealt with firsthand narratives in other situations. And uh, memoirs, by definition, are a famously imperfect record of history in one sense. It's a lot like self-reporting in psychological <laughs> studies. You know, uh, They record only one person's experience, so by definition, they are always fallible and one-sided. And if you want to think of it in, in a narrow way like that, uh, how are we ever to know if one person's story is typical of the average experience or if it's atypical? And, uh, how are we to know if this person is telling the truth or remembering things as they actually happen? We know from our own personal experience that stories change from one telling to the next, if you've ever played the game Telephone before. <laughs> oh, yeah. So in that sense, they're always imperfect. Uh, however, in another sense, personal memories are really the only true history that we have. And what is history if not the stories that form our human experience? And um, our collective recollection, as in a textbook, is still a recollection. And the best of all memoirs are only as reliable as memories itself, which is, by definition, is flawed and not accurate. So for me, the discrepancies brought up by the Australian, although worth mentioning, are not a problem that challenges the authenticity of the work. I mean, another point to make is that uh, no claim Bea makes conflicts with testimony that the world has heard from other child soldiers. His story is not atypical in any way. And uh, if he were an anomaly and this were something that has never happened to anyone else in the world, then maybe we might want to challenge it, but it's not. And it certainly is hard to believe at points uh, as we think of the utter inhumanity of what you're reading. But Unfortunately, he is one of many, and his story is a well-written account of something that we know is far too common. Well, let me add this. You know, in that same interview that I referenced, uh, he pointed out, and I find this interesting, that he did not do any research uh, for this book, that he didn't want to. He let other people chronicle the events of the nation, and he didn't obviously keep a diary during his days as a soldier he didn't write anything down uh, about what happened to him until after he left Sierra Leone, which, you know, the longer I thought about it, that would make sense. So his book, by his own admission, is not a collection of statistical human data. He didn't do interviews from the people from his past. He didn't, you know, clip journals and, and think about or read about the events that he was privy to. Uh, th that's not the purpose of this. This is his personal story, and he doesn't run from that. But he doesn't second-guess it either, and I, I think that's important. He knows what he knows, and he wants to be true to that. You know, an interview uh, from some of the people from his third section would be something I would be interested in reading. Oh, me too. There are many uh, human aid workers who really deserve a lot of credit for the mostly anonymous and difficult work that they're involved in during and after these kind of civil unrest and not just in Sierra Leone. And, uh, I was glad to see we got a little glimpse into what this kind of work looks like. I mean, to say it's not easy is an understatement. <laughs> oh, I know. You know, when chapter 16 introduces uh, the few heroes that he does list by name, we see, you know, they've selflessly, many of them have selflessly devoted themselves to children who were recovered with Bayet there in Sierra Leone. And, and the first thing we see is that these 
ex-combatants, you know, they've been fighting. Some of them have been fighting for the rebels. Others, like Bea, had been fighting in the army. So when they're together in this same facility, obviously you know what's going to happen. Chaos and and total (laughs) danger. It's a dangerous place to be. Mm. It's such a difficult problem to solve. I mean, for one reason, the problem did not start when these children joined the army. And we saw this in Bea's stories. These children were alienated already from their communities of origin before they were exposed to the violence of war. Their gun uh, gave them a sense of power. And as we see in Bea's case, that could be taken away in at any moment. And that's not even the hard part. How does the world wean child combatants off of the violence and away from the various uh, fighting forces is difficult and prolonged, um, especially when their gun is their only friend and the only caretaker they have. In most cases, you can't just send the rescue children back to where they came from. There is no home to send them to, and there's no family. And even if they are sent back to their communities, which this has been tried many times, what human aid workers found is that the survivors from these communities don't want them. In many cases, um, especially in the cases of the children who fought for the RUF, these children were responsible for the murder of their friends and neighbors. And, and, and who wants to adopt a child like this? And who wants to forgive a child like this? And uh, who can live without fear, even if they decided to accept them, uh, that one day they won't just snap? And, you know, girls especially have a very difficult, challenging reintegration into community no matter where they go. They have a problem the boys don't have. They're considered spoiled goods because of the um, the sexual trauma that they had lived through. And they've been raped and perhaps made a child bride to one or more adult soldiers. And no one in the original community wants to marry them after they've all suffered. Uh, these returning girls are seen as mm-hmm. worthless. And these are just a few of the issues. There are so many obstacles in reintegration. Um, although many ex-child combatants want an education and to live a positive and productive life, it takes so many community resources, um, as well as a lot of internal resilience to make such a transition even remotely possible for these children. It does not always happen, but sometimes it does, and, and that's what we see here. And non-governmental agencies of all kinds, uh, you know, UNICEF or other government-sponsored agencies, and religious organizations play very important roles. These organizations work together to create processes known as DDR, which stands for Disarmament, Demobilization, and Reintegration. Well, Bea was disarmed by his own military group, but now he's moved on to these more difficult phases, you know, demobil- demobilization, as they say. Uh, as a child in the book, Bea calls these humanitarian workers civilians because uh, he's not you know? and that's an insult yes he's hostile to them in fact he physically hurts them when he can and what's amazing to read and i just don't even know how they do this they don't retaliate to the contrary they affirm him over and over again with this phrase it's not your fault you know they they become surrogate caregivers they work to build trust between themselves and the children Bea highlights two people uh, who played important roles in his life, Esther and a man named Leslie. Esther's a nurse, and Leslie works for this Catholic charity known as CAW. 
One interesting uh, story technique I really enjoy that Bea uses, by the way, as he walks us through his journey, uh, as he really presents the perspective that he's mostly confused (laughs) about what's going on. Uh, And and a lot of times he expresses that he doesn't even care what what's going on. We see this process, you know, somewhat from the inside. Um, Yes, but it's important for us to appreciate that there is a process uh, there is a commitment on the part of many people to make a difference. And, of course, not all child soldiers get rescued, but some do. And um, in places like Sierra Leone or in other war zones, if possible, NGOs, non-governmental uh, organizations, those are things like charities and religious groups or other nonprofit organizations. They work with governmental agencies and, if possible, Uh, create something they call ICCs or interim care centers. They try to be there for ex-combatants in these phases of transitions, and we are watching them in action in the middle of the story. They help get child soldiers back in school. They trace family members. uh, They get them appropriate medical treatment, and we see Baya needing every bit of all of this. And We've used the word a lot, but I want to talk about one organization Baya references more than once because it's an important one. That's UNICEF. UNICEF is an agency of the United Nations, and it works with all these different groups. And UNICEF suggests now that each combatant needs anywhere from three to five years of support at some level to fully reintegrate in a positive way. ICCs are the first step. Bea stays at the Benin house for eight months before he is uh, reintegrated with a family member back into society. And one positive thing we can say about the work many organizations in Sierra Leone have done is that there has been a relatively high success rate in finding family members for former soldiers to return to. The RUF in particular really sought to instill in the children the idea that they could never go back home, even if they wanted to, that they would be killed if they did. Uh, However, ex-combatants who have gone through ICCs, they really do have a high rate of return. I mean, it's not 100%, but in some cases, uh, they are right, and a family rejects their child. And we saw that in the story. You know, one of Bea's friends, uh, Mambu, his family refused to take him in, and so we see the choice he made. He just got his gun and went back to the front lines. True, and sometimes extended members take in these wards, um, you know, that's what they're called, and they don't treat them well, and they treat them like um, Cinderella's stepsisters treated her, (laughs) making them work, living in subhuman conditions, and those things do happen. But there is a larger number that are reintegrated, uh, maybe more than you might think when you think of all the obstacles. Well, you would think it would be almost none, but it's impressive to see, you know, that that's what's going on. And to me, it seems that the credit goes to these frontline workers. I mean, those are the heroes. It's incredible what they suffered and the commitment they demonstrate to the children. I mean, just the physical abuse uh, in Bea's case is horrible. And I want to read an excerpt so you can get the idea if it's been a while since you read the book. This is what he says. He's just gotten to the center. And let me quote him. It was infuriating to be told what to do by civilians. Their voices, even when they called us for breakfast, enraged me so much that I would punch the wall, my locker, or anything I was standing next to. A few days earlier, we could have decided whether they would live or die. Because of these things, we refused to do anything we were asked to do, except eat. 
We had bread and tea for breakfast, rice and soup for both lunch and dinner. The assortment of soups consisted of cassava leaves, potato leaves, okra, and so forth. We were unhappy because we needed our guns and drugs. At the end of every meal, the nurse and staff members came to talk to us about attending the scheduled medical checkups in the mini hospital at the Benning Home and the one-on-one counseling sessions in the psychosocial therapy center that we hated. As soon as they started speaking, we would throw bowls, spoons, food, and benches at them. We would chase them out of the dining hall and beat them up. One afternoon, after we had chased off the nurses and staff, members, we placed a bucket over the cook's head and pushed him around the kitchen until he burned his hand on a hot boiling pot and agreed to put more milk in our tea. I mean, it just goes on. I mean, they did stuff like this all the time. There's an incident where they stabbed the foot of this worker named Poppy. They beat him up until he was bleeding and unconscious and had to go to the hospital. But amazingly, Poppy returns. I mean, he's limping and he's smiling and he says this to the boys. It is not your fault that you did such a thing to me. I mean, (laughs) I don't know what to say. I don't know if I could say it's not your fault. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there have been studies done to understand how child soldiers feel about what they've done. And in one sense, and, and this is what Poppy is saying, it's truly not their fault. They are children and uh, many are forced and others are coerced and all are children. But but how do the children view themselves? And the literature says that actually it is important for them to feel guilt, to take some responsibility for their actions. And this is morally appropriate for a lot of reasons. Um, in other words, it's actually good for them to feel bad. It shows that they've not lost their sense of right and wrong completely. And that's important when they feel guilt um, or really as they feel guilt. They're able to process their experiences. It may add to their suffering in the short term, uh, and in fact, it does add to their suffering. But processing the experiences, talking about them, working through them is an important part of their own moral recovery. And it's not about self-punishment. It's about understanding the wrongness of past actions. And for a combatant to recover, they must view their actions as morally wrong and take responsibility for that. Mm, well, what we see, you know, in Bea's case is as he comes off the drugs, he has more of these flashbacks and he relives uh, these atrocious events. And obviously we see that they disturb him. And Esther becomes very important in this dialogue process. I mean, she's very kind. And like I said, she gives him the Walkman. She arranges for him to have a trip to town. She embraces his friends. She connects with him. I mean, to me, she connects him with Leslie. To me, she's an angel. (laughs) Yes, and I think we cannot overstate how invaluable her contribution was to his recuperation. And remember, he recalls waking up one night only to remember slitting someone's throat for the first time. I mean, those are real traumatic memories. So the struggle, if you are a Bea or any ex-combatant, is to understand whether you are a good person or an evil person. And Esther is this person who enters your life and affirms that you are a good person, that although you did bad things, they're not all your fault. There is redemption in some of this. And Esther is allowing Bea to acknowledge his guilt, his own moral agency, but also acknowledging and accepting the complexity of his experience. And, you know, in this, we watch him find healing and even a family. And Leslie finds a family member, an uncle, uh, his father's brother. And furthermore, the uncle is willing to take him home. 
This, of course, is a very important part of the reintegration strategy of most NGOs. And we've acknowledged that there are cases where extended family members uh, don't want to welcome the wards. But in Bayes' case, that wasn't true. His uncle was more than happy to incorporate him into their family. I mean, he doesn't even tell anyone that Ishmael's been a child soldier. So Ishmael moves in, and we see him begin the process of rebuilding. I mean, he does well at home. He does well in presenting himself to outsiders, too. In fact, he's been a standout at the Bending Home. That's how he got invited to be a part of the UN conference that uh, was held at the UN headquarters in New York City. To me, Gary, this is impossible to conceive. I mean, this whole idea that this kid ends up in New York. You have a child from the interior of Sierra Leone who has lost everything. He's been a child soldier living in the jungle sleeping on the ground, and all of a sudden, he's in the most modern and sophisticated of all settings. I mean, the story of his experiences in New York, and for the most part, they're kind of cute. Watching him experience cold weather for the first time, you know, I was listening last week to a refugee from the Congo uh, tell me about how it was when she came to Tennessee. And she said when she got off the plane and walked into Tennessee, she thought she'd walked into a freezer and couldn't get out. <laughs> and that's a southern state. I know. <laughs> you know, I, I can only imagine if you've never known cold weather, how shocking that is. And, uh, and we can see in the text that there were so many things he'd never experienced before. Um, he saw Times Square and other famous landmarks in New York City. And I'll tell you. Those things are all striking for this boy here from Kansas City. <laughs> I can't imagine how it would appear to a young boy from Montrejong, Sierra Leone. <laughs> I know, but you know, but beyond the culture shock of just these two parallel universes that have been existing side by side, Bea manages to impress the delegates of the United Nations. Um, Gary, not everyone may know or understand the role of the United Nations in the world today, but it's a big deal that Bea got invited to speak at the UN. Well, it's a big deal that he got invited to go, much less speak. So tell us, you know, what is the United Nations? Why is that a big deal? Sure. You know, the United Nations is an international organization that was formed after World War II. And uh, after two world wars, the consensus of uh, many nations was that it would be a good idea to have a place where the world could come together, discuss problems, and try to find solutions, hopefully avoiding uh, another world war. Currently, there are 193 nations as members, and the UN, which is short for United Nations, is headquartered in New York in the United States. Uh, it has various bodies. There's the General Assembly, the Security Council, the uh, Economic and Social Council, the Trusteeship Council, the International Court of Justice, and the UN Secretariat. I think and, he spoke at the Econ Economic and Social Council. Okay. Uh, UNICEF, which we've talked about and Bea discusses various times, uh, is a program of the United Nations. And the mission of UNICEF is to save and defend the rights of children and help them fulfill their potential and during Bea's seven uh, months of rehabilitation, a convoy of ambassadors from UNICEF and a few other organizations vented, uh, visited Benin House, and their purpose was to see if it was even possible for boy soldiers to be rehabilitated. People worried about what will happen when these children reenter society, and of course it was through uh, Bea's interaction with this group that he was asked to go to the U.N., 
Bay's speeches as well as his life experiences are the argument that it is possible, uh, maybe not in every case, but in many cases, it is possible to overcome the trauma of being a child soldier. He is there to say that it is possible to regain one's humanity, even after the trauma of this kind of war. Incredibly, his words, you know, not just in the speeches that he gave at the UN, but his words in the pages of this book convince me personally that such a thing is possible. You know, he illustrates his journey to recovery. And as we see this, we see his humanity coming back to him. One emotional passage that stands out to me is where he records saying goodbye to Esther. I have to go, I said to everyone, my voice shaking. I extended my hand to Muhammad, but instead of shaking it, he leapt up and hugged me. Mambu embraced me while Muhammad was still holding me. He squeezed me hard as if he knew it was goodbye forever. After I left the center, Mambu went back to the front lines because his family refused to take him in. At the end of the hug, Ahaji shook hands with me. We squeezed each other's hand and stared in each other's eyes, remembering all that we had been through. I tapped him on the shoulder and he smiled as he understood that I was saying we were going to be fine. I never saw him again since he continually moved from one foster home to another. At the end of our handshake, Ahaji stepped back, saluted me and whispered, Goodbye, squad leader. I tapped him on the shoulder again. I couldn't salute him in return. Esther stepped forward, her eyes watery. She hugged me tighter than she ever had. I didn't return her hug very well as I was busy trying to hold back my tears. After she let go, she gave me a piece of paper. This is my address. Come by any time, she said. Well, Bea's story is on track to be a happily ever after story, as is his speech at the UN Economic and Social Council. I think in the context of his experience and, and listening to this, it's it's interesting to hear what he said to the UN. I mean, what you what would you say? But these are his words. I begin by saying I am from Sierra Leone and the problem that is affecting us children is the war that forces us to run away from our homes, lose our families, and aimlessly roam the forest. As a result, we get involved in the conflict as soldiers, carriers of loads, and in many other difficult tasks. All this is because of starvation, the loss of our families, and the need to feel safe and be part of something when all else has broken down. I joined the Army really because of the loss of my family and starvation. I wanted to avenge the deaths of my family. I also had to get some food to survive, and the only way to do that was to be part of the Army. It was not easy being a soldier, but we had just had to do it. I have been rehabilitated now, so don't be afraid of me. I'm not a child soldier anymore. I am a child. We are all brothers and sisters. What I have learned from my experience is that revenge is not good. I joined the Army to avenge the deaths of my family and to survive, but I've come to learn that if I'm going to take revenge... In that process, I will kill another person whose family will want revenge. Then revenge and revenge and revenge. It will never come to an end. I mean, to me, that's super insightful. Uh, We can't forget, also, I want to point out that it was here uh, that he meets Laura, the woman who will one day adopt him. But at this point in his life, he doesn't know that he's going to need to be adopted. He has a family to return to. He has no way of knowing that the things he just described were about to happen to him again. National politics was going to intervene personally into his life. And on May 25th, 1997, 
Bea wakes up to the sound of gunshots. War was breaking out in Freetown. Gary, he didn't know, but we do, what was happening. All Bea knew that it was starting over again, and he one more time was going to have to run, or he would end up being recruited to fight. This was a choice that he did not want to make. Of course. Uh, so in 1996, a man by the name of Ahmed Teon Kaba was elected president of Sierra Leone. Kaba negotiated and signed a peace settlement with the RUF. However, in May, and really no one argues with Bay that these dates are exact, the RUF reneges on their side of the agreement and they invade Freetown. President Kaba is forced to flee and um, Johnny Paul Koroma leads a group called the Armed Forces Revolutionary Council, which is supported by the RUF, and they take over to form a new government. This lasts until 1998 when President Kaba returns with forces from the Nigerian-dominated uh, economic community of West Africa states. He takes over and is reestablished as president. Now, I could barely follow that. It just sounds like war, 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 <laughs> war. People one after the yes. other. Yes, well, it is, and it's not over. Uh, in January of 1999, uh, notice there's been a revolution now every year since 96. But in January of 99, the RUF attacked Freetown again, this time with a particularly brutal campaign they called Operation No Living Thing. Thousands of civilians were hacked to death. And in July of that year, a peace treaty was finally signed that did end the violence and brought U.N. peacekeeping forces to help maintain the peace. And a commission was also formed to document what happened. Um, this treaty was called a Lome Peace Treaty, and President Kaba brought a three-year-old amputee to mm. the signing. Since then, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has documented 40,242 counts of violations. Now, a violation uh, could be anything that could include things like maiming people uh, or rape or drugging people or forced labor or killing, you know, things like that. Uh, there were 14,995 identified victims, 59% of which could be attributed to the RUF. But besides the ones that are documented, there's an estimation that there are over 100,000 non-documented amputations. And according to the BBC, likely 20,000 unaccounted for killings. The war shattered over 3,000 towns and villages and totally destroyed the country's infrastructure. The UN intervention from this treaty grew into a huge peacekeeping mission that's protected civilians and enforced the peace. Unfortunately, though, not in time for Ismael Bea and his friends. No. Um, as we can see from his timeline, he was caught in Freetown during the worst possible time. Uh, children were being recruited and put back on the front lines by the RUF. The Sobels, as he mentions, were blowing up bank vaults and looting money, and schools were occupied by these soldier looters. And convinced of all that, his uncle died. And, and I want to read that paragraph because he's talking about how the family reacted. And he's talking about his wife, the uncle's wife. She refused to believe that her husband had died. I still held my uncle in my arms, tears running down my face. My entire body had gone numb. I couldn't move from where I sat. Muhammad and Ali came in and took uncle away from me and put him on the bed. After a few minutes, I was able to get up. 
I went behind the house and punched the mango tree until Muhammad took me away from it. I was always losing everything. That meant something to me. My cousins cried, asking, Who's going to take care of us now? Why did this happen to us in these difficult times? Down in the city, the gunmen fired off their guns. This is when Bea contacts Laura from the UN and asks if he could stay with her, assuming he could get out of Sierra Leone. And she miraculously says yes, and he makes his way to Conakry, the capital of Guinea, Sierra Leone's other neighbor. And the story of his getting out is how the book ends. You know, Bea ends his memoir recollecting a crowded bus in Conakry. At this point, he's safely out of the war zone of Sierra Leone, but he's alone. He's sitting in a bus watching a mother with two young children, and she's telling them a story. It reminds him of a story that he had heard many times as a child. He finishes his memoir by recounting what I think is a very important old African tale. He'd never understood the story as a child, and I find it confusing too. But the story is a warning against revenge, a call to pay any price, no matter how personally painful uh, it is to let the violence in with you. We'll finish our podcast today by reading this little short tale. There was a hunter who went into the bush to kill a monkey. He had looked for only a few minutes when he saw a monkey sitting comfortably in the branch of a low tree. The monkey didn't pay him any attention, not even when his footsteps on the dried leaves rose and fell as he neared. When he was close enough and behind a tree where he could clearly see the monkey, he raised his rifle and aimed. Just when he was about to pull the trigger, the monkey spoke. If you shoot me, your mother will die, and if you don't, your father will die. The monkey resumed his position, chewing his food, and every so often scratched his head or the side of its belly. What would you do if you were the hunter? This was a story told to young people in my village once a year. The storyteller, usually an elder, would pose this unanswerable question at the end of the story in the presence of the children's parents. Every child who was present at the gathering was asked to give an answer. But no child ever did, since their mother and father were both present. The storyteller never offered an answer either. During each of these gatherings, when it was my time to respond, I always told the storyteller that I would think it over, which of course was not a good enough answer. After such gatherings, my peers and I, all the children between the ages of 6 and 12, would brainstorm several possible answers that would avoid the death of one of our parents. There was no right answer. If you spared the monkey, somebody was going to die, and if you didn't, someone would also die. That night, we agreed on an answer, but it was immediately rejected. We told Paul say that if any of us was the hunter, we wouldn't have gone hunting for monkeys. We told him, there are other animals such as deer to hunt. That is not an acceptable answer, he said. We are assuming that you, as the hunter, had already raised your gun and have to make the decision. He broke his cola nut in half and smiled before putting a piece in his mouth. When I was seven, I had an answer to this question that made sense to me. I never discussed it with anyone, though for fear of how my mother would feel. I concluded to myself that if I were the hunter, I would shoot the monkey so that it would no longer have the chance to put other hunters in the same predicament. And that is self-sacrifice. Because the call to stop the perpetuation of violence 
is to stop it, even if it costs you your mother. Now, that is not something many of us are willing to accept, and it is the lesson only a child who has paid the ultimate price, and the ultimate price is not his own death, but a price worse than death could ever really understand. Indeed. And so um, in this season, as we say, peace on earth, goodwill towards men, may we truly mean it and work towards that end. So thank you for listening today. We hope you've enjoyed the series on Ishmael Bea's important memoir. As always, please visit us on our website at howtolovelypodcast.com. Please support the podcast by liking us on your podcast app or YouTube or, uh, you know, subscribing, giving us a rating, but most importantly, sharing an episode with a friend. It's only when you share that we grow. Thank you. Peace out. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.